How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am welcomed by Eric Trexler today. So if you don't know Eric, he has a PhD and has published over 30 papers of research. Uh, so you guys know that he's incredibly smart and well-read and, well, helping further the research. He's a coach himself with loads of experience in kind of helping people lose fat, gain muscle, a natural bodybuilder, has dabbled in powerlifting, and he is the new director of education at Stronger by Science. So for those who don't know, that is uh, Greg Nichols' kind of company. So that's really cool. Um, and yeah, if there's anything you want to kind of expand upon there, please do, Eric. Thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I think you summed it up well. Um, I'm a bodybuilder at heart that got into science and uh, and now I do both. Which is really cool because a lot of our listeners are, we're kind of geeks, but also love to lift. And you're one who does exactly both. Uh, you're researching and have competed. And something I said that I wanted to ask Eric off air was talking about kind of why is bodybuilding research so hard to do? I think a lot of our listeners myself included, sometimes get frustrated because we're kind of, uh, a study looks really cool and then you look at who's kind of involved, you're like, huh, that isn't so applicable maybe. Uh, so I'd love to hear from a researcher, why is it so difficult to get good bodybuilding research? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, one of the things about bodybuilding research is that it, they're the projects I did that I'm most proud of and had the most fun with, but were also the biggest headaches. Um, they're very difficult to make them work. And there's two main reasons. The first one is fairly obvious, which is research costs money. Um, you know, we, we have to, anytime you want to measure anything important, it requires equipment. And sometimes, uh, you know, anything hormone related, that's money that, that, you can't just buy a piece of equipment and use it for decades. It's like you buy the reagents to do the assay, you get one shot and those reagents are used. So um, it costs money to take measurements and the more, uh, in, the more essentially fancy or sophisticated the measurements, the cooler questions you can answer, but usually the more cost is involved. So that's why, you know, if, if you want to do something and your only measurement is bench press, well, that's a one-time cost that you can use for decades. But when you want to start getting into hormones, when you want to start getting into more complex measurements, there's a lot more money involved. And, you know, the question is, where does that money come from? You know, it's basically two sources, private entities or government organizations are, are really the places where you often get research funding. There aren't a lot of private entities that have a vested interest in funding bodybuilding research, you know. So a lot of the other research I've done is on supplements, and that's a very obvious marriage in which, you know, supplement companies need research done on their products. And, you know, researchers like us, we, we, we can very easily say, well, we want to run this study. It's on something that's relevant to you. Will you offer funding for it? Or it, it can work the other way where a company says, we need this research done. Do you have the capacity to do it? So in that case, you know, 
there's a very uh, there's an obvious pairing where there's someone with a financial interest and somebody with the capacity to actually do the work. With bodybuilding, there's no one entity that says, hey, we want to push the general premise of bodybuilding. Here's some money to do a study. So that's the obvious one. Um, and then, you know, with with government entities and healthcare related entities, there's just not a huge public interest in how to get someone from 11% body fat to five and then back to 11. Just they don't care. And I would argue, in, in fact, they probably shouldn't, you know, like if the question is like, hey, there's some grant money on the table, we're either going to research uh, cardiovascular disease or cancer or bodybuilding, <laughs> I'd say, leave it to the other two guys, we'll find a different way. You know, I, I don't want to steal from that pot of money. Um, so funding is tough. The logistics are extremely tough. That's kind of part two of it. So a great example of that is we did our study on post-competition, uh, kind of what happens after competition. And what you run in, into there is that, you know, we can't just show up at a, at a, show up at a competition, take some measurements and say, everybody come back in a certain number of months. Because what you'll find is some people in that show have traveled in from quite some distance and do not want to come back. What you'll also find is some of those people have another show in three weeks. So if we're trying to look at post-competition recovery, they are not doing that. You know, So you have to restrict things and say, well, it's got to be local competitors and it's got to be people that this is their final show of the year and they won't you know, basically commit to not doing another one for at least like six or 12 months. All of a sudden, that big show with a bunch of competitors yields a very small pool of potential participants. Um, so that's really tricky on even just looking at after the show. When it comes to studying what people are doing into the competition, now you're asking a bodybuilder to let some random person in a lab coat dictate every aspect of their, their competition prep. Um, and frankly, for most bodybuilders, choosing how to prep and manipulating variables as you go is the entire fun. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not just, hey, here's a template. You're going to feel very tired and hungry for a few months. That's not a very fun thing. The fun thing is how do I do this and try to get the right combination of factors to maximize my look, to minimize my side effects. And basically, every time you do it, you're trying to get it more correct mm -hmm. and, and continually improve your approach. If you were to just hand that over to some person who's going to randomly give you one of two plans, that honestly takes a lot of fun out for the competitors and, and more, uh, more pragmatically or more applicable to your question, no one's willing to do that. Yeah. You know, so even if they, you know, even if it wasn't a huge hit on how much they would enjoy it, it's just, you're not going to get anyone to do that. So, um, you know, the, the research we did during my PhD was mostly, uh, observational. Uh, you can work with case studies in which, you know, that's a, a very nice way to do it where you can, uh, still get some cool measurements done and still let a person operate freely with how they prep, but you basically can can get a very comprehensive view of exactly how they managed all those variables. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, uh, the post-competition study I mentioned, we collected the data in Tampa. I did not intend to collect the data in Tampa. Logistically, it was the only way to make it work. Wow. <laughs> I, I was in Chapel Hill trying to find, you know, trying to do the recruitment process and, and very, very quickly realized Chapel Hill is not the place to do this study. 
And we were very fortunate that Bill Campbell uh, is a good friend of mine and a good friend of my advisors. And we said, okay, Tampa, for whatever reason, is, is actually quite a hotbed of, of uh, physique athletes. So we were able to basically fly down there and, and make it happen, which was, again, not the plan, but logistically kind of the only way to make it work. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I mean, just for the the fact is, I don't think people often think about, okay, research costs money. There's lots of money involved within it. And if anything, money is going to go towards things that are much more important within our health, longevity, like obesity research, like there's loads of things on that because it's important. So I, I absolutely respect that. And then, yeah, I mean, finding participants that I, it just in my head, I was thinking, would I even commit to that? Like, I just know I wouldn't. It's kind of like I wouldn't let a an app dictate what I was doing during my contest prep. I couldn't leave it to an app. I'd need someone to be able to talk to and converse with. Um, and bodybuilders are probably some of the hardest people to ever convince to do something, especially if they've got their own ways, um, which most of us do. And I wonder, do you, I think something I find really valuable is like on this podcast, I can talk to people like yourself who are coaches and they coach people. And then you just find out a lot through their experience because oftentimes They've just had so many protocols with so many different clients. It's almost as va like more valuable sometimes than trying to rely on the small amount of research we have. Do you often see that yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're interacting with somebody that's actively doing it, whether it's you know your own prep or somebody else's prep, you you still see things that surprise you, and and then you kind of try to make sense of it. You rely on literature, you rely on experience, you try to triangulate all that information. But yeah, I mean, um, I, I, a lot of times I will talk to people like, you know, Lane Norton and Eric, Eric Helms and, you know, we'll, we'll be like, we're looking at a case study that, that we just did. And I'll be like, does this make any sense to you? Cause, cause you've, you know, as, as a prep coach, you've basically run, a few hundred case studies, yeah. you know, you might not have had uh, access to the measurements, but, but you've been there and you've seen the, the pretty obvious things happening as they come. And so I, I think that's one of the, one of the things that was most rewarding for me with doing some of the case studies is we've always kind of known that some of this stuff is happening, but yeah. we've never had numbers to back it up. We've never had the capacity to actually measure the things that we are uh, making inferences about. So, you know, you can have a client that says, you know, you're, let's say you're working with a natural male competitor and they're like, man, I feel really lethargic and have no libido. That's something we've known for ages, but in, until people started doing case studies on it, we haven't been able to say, here's the magnitude of drop off in thyroid hormones and testosterone. Here's how rapidly they, they occur in the process and here's how long it takes for them to recover. You know, until we start getting measurements, then it's just a lot of guesswork and, and trying to figure out, you know, it, especially like my most recent prep, I had a lot of issues trying to get sleep. Um, hunger actually wasn't an issue uh, in terms of like subjective hunger, mm -hmm. uh, but sleep was just in, very difficult to come by. And so you, you run into a situation where until you start taking measurements on things, it, it's hard to approximate, you know, for someone who's late in prep hey, I feel lethargic and crappy and have no libido. And you, you start to think, well, how much of that could be overtraining related? How much could be undersleeping, underfeeding, thyroid hormone, testosterone? Until we start getting some of these measurements put down to paper, it, it's a lot of guesswork because these different factors have overlapping uh, realms and how they could kind of subjectively feel to the athlete. 
Yeah, I think the research, I, I wouldn't have liked to have, I hope it didn't sound like I was saying the research isn't valuable because I absolutely think it's very valuable like you just said there because it actually allows you to have expectations as a coach, as a client to whether or not these things are normal or if they're kind of potentially you're feeling these things way sooner than you necessarily should or it just allows you to have expectations so that post-show you can be like, right, I don't know, I'm a couple of months post-show, should I be feeling kind of normal yet? And it's like, well, we actually have this data we can go by and kind of give inferences towards that. And as a coach and client, like it's super valuable. And one of the studies I wanted to go over with you was the study on metabolic adaption to weight loss and the implications for the athlete. So in other words, kind of what happens when we get people from lean to really lean. Um, and I'd love to kind of, first of all, go over what changes kind of occur step by step. So kind of the adaptive thermogenesis, increased micro, mitochondrial efficiency, um, hormonal alterations, like each of those segments and kind of, and then maybe we can kind of attack how can we best kind of alleviate them or make them as small as possible. So yeah, if we go over the initial, what happens when we go from lean to really lean? Yeah, definitely. Um, and if, if I start rambling and fail to answer the question or a part of it, just, just, interject keep me on track <laughs> and i do want to reiterate um you know a, a lot of times there's like you mentioned you you weren't trying to downplay the aspect of research um and and i like to live in both of those worlds yeah. and and i i view them as two completely equal contributors to helping us understand you know when we go into planning a study in a physique athlete where do you think we get our hypotheses or or like our intended plan of what we're going to measure you know in, in that case those research questions start at the coach level and the client level and work their way to research, you know? So I, I really dislike when, when people that have some of that lab access or lab experience act like observations in the field aren't helpful, uh, especially in something like this field of study, they are really what forms the basis for those research questions. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've never understood the practitioners who don't care what researchers have to say. And I've never understood the researchers who refuse to listen to the practitioners. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, but yeah, so getting into your question, metabolic adaptation, um, it was really like the first big project I took on as a graduate student. Um, got a lot of help from Lane Norton on that, who's, uh, I've always loved Lane. Um, he, he's been tremendously helpful to me my entire career. Um, but basically the premise was, you know, you've, Someone like Lane, who's worked with hundreds of clients and made a lot of, you know, non-academic observations that are academic in nature. So I, I'm, you know, trying to look at this objectively. Here's what I'm seeing. How do we make sense of this? And, and the kind of repeated observation is we get people down um, into contest shape and, you know, all those generic calculators of here's your deficit, here's your expected weight loss. They're, they're not really matching up to what we're seeing. And so the question is... It, you know, it seems like these athletes are getting more energetically efficient as we go through the weight loss process and approach very low body fat levels and have relatively large energy deficits. And so the question is, what do we make of that and, and what could potentially be at play there? Because if a certain observation comes up enough times and you, you are actively trying to be objective about it, at a certain point, you have to say, it's time to start actually making some sense of this and putting together some some evidence that that would kind of help to explain it. Um, and so there's kind of a two pronged approach, really. Um, at first, you review the evidence available and then 
you generate new evidence, right? Like that's kind of the research process. So first we wrote that review paper and then we did some studies on physique athletes to actually start measuring stuff. Um, so the review paper talks about what happens when it comes to, you know, metabolic rate, mitochondrial efficiency and hormonal uh, changes. And the reason it was a little bit difficult to structure the paper, and I'm working on a, a really long article right now for Stronger by Science on this topic, the concepts are all interrelated. Mm -hmm. So if we start big picture, what we know with contest prep is uh, resting metabolic rate is going to go down as you lose lean tissue um, throughout a contest prep or, or just total tissue even. Um, but what we see looking at the, uh, the literature, both in bodybuilders and in just obese individuals losing weight is the reduction in resting metabolic rate is more than we would have expected. You know, it, it's not simply the loss of tissue because when we try to correct for that, there's still a deficit there. There's still kind of a mismatch. So we know that resting metabolic rate should fall with weight loss in general, but it's also falling more than it would be expected to. Um, so that's resting metabolic rate. Um, exercise activity thermogenesis, the calories we burn during exercise also seem to fall a little bit more than we would expect. Um, certainly, uh, you would expect if you're, you know, think of something like running or a locomotive exercise, you are moving a smaller mass, your body weighs less. So we would expect some change in efficiency, but even when we correct for that, there's, there's still, a, a, again, a mismatch. And the big, really, uh, the most influential factor is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So again, we might expect that that would fall um, with weight loss in general, but what we see is that it is uh, a very pronounced fall when it comes to non-exercise activity. Um, so the, the final part of energy expenditure is the thermic effect of feeding. Uh, in the interest of a comprehensive rundown, um, that's going to fall with weight loss because you're going to be eating less. Um, but in terms of, you know, any unexpected drop or a relative increase in, in efficiency, we really don't see much for thermic effective feeding. That, that, that aspect is pretty straightforward. You eat less, so it takes less calories to digest and absorb stuff. Uh, but the other three components are changed at a relative level. They drop more than we would expect in the real the real huge contributor is non-exercise activity. So that's the calories you burn doing any kind of activity that is not structured exercise. Um, and if, if you've been around athletes, if you coach them, if you've done a prep, that's pretty, pretty clear, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's like one of those things, like the, the, the kind of joke, um, is like when you're in prep and like the room that you're sitting in catches on fire, you just kind of look over and you're like, <laughs> do I really think that fire is going to spread or can I just stay here? You know, like it's just, if it's not an absolute dire emergency, you just stop moving. <laughs> like it's crazy. It, it like late in prep. Um, and then even just subconscious things like fidgeting in your chair. Like what we see is that those non-essential physical activity tasks are, are extremely constrained in contest prep. So those are the aspects of energy expenditure that change and cumulative, cumulatively altogether, they leave us in a spot where we thought we would be losing more weight than we are at a given caloric intake and a given level of physical exercise. Uh, now that's where some of these other factors come into play is 
with non-exercise activity, there's certainly behavioral things that we can look at and say, well, that explains it. You know, you've subconscious, subconsciously constrained your non-exercise activity and probably the, the key center that's really dictating that, that is the hypothalamus, in my opinion. There, there's certainly conscious regulation, but there's also subconscious regulation. Mm -hmm. And the hypothalamus is really the key integrator when it comes to brain structures of energy availability and what we choose to do with that in terms of hunger, uh, activity levels, movement. The, the hypothalamus really triangulates all of the feedback that's coming back as the primary uh, integration center for that information. Um, but but th this is where things like the hormone response and mitochondrial efficiency come into play. And mitochondrial efficiency, um, just to give a, a general idea of what we're talking about there, um, you know, if, if you took you know, eighth grade biology or high school biology, they'll, they'll call mitochondria the powerhouses of the cell. Um, and, and that's because a huge proportion of our daily ATP is made there. Um, very, very huge proportion. And so w ATP, again, from high school biology is the energy currency of the cell. If we want to do things that take biological energy, um, those biological processes are going to require ATP. So the mitochondria have to make it. Um, you know, without giving an exhaustive kind of run through macronutrient metabolism, we're going to burn off the macronutrients we have, whether it's through food or stored macronutrients. So the food we eat, the fat that we have stored, glycogen, we're, we're going to burn those and make ATP in the process. And that's heavily reliant on how the mitochondria function. But what we see is that with caloric restriction, the mitochondria change the efficiency with which they complete those transactions. And so what we'll see is for, you know, a, a given amount of uh, caloric expenditure, they will actually create more ATP um, or probably a more appropriate way to look at that with weight loss is they can make the amount of ATP needed using less caloric expenditure. So that's, that's probably the, the more notable way to, or the more applicable way to look at it because your body's not going to just generate a bunch of extra ATP depending on your caloric intake. What it's going to do, ATP demand is driving all those reactions and what your body will do is basically learn to make the same amount of ATP using less energy. So you're basically saving calories. Um, and when I say learn to, that's obviously, it's not, uh, uh, you know, a brain thing going on there. What's happening is the mitochondrial inner membrane uh, the characteristics of how it transports uh, protons it changes. And what we find is that its per permeability is essentially reduced. Um, so the way we make that ATP is we burn energy, we pump protons out. They need to get back into the inner part of the mitochondrion. And the way they do that is through the ATP synthase enzyme. And, and what happens is we make ATP in the process. Under normal circumstances, some of those protons are going to leak back in through other avenues. They're not going to go through that uh, enzyme that actually produces ATP. So it, it's just kind of an inefficiency that is part of the process for us. But what we find is uh, there's all sorts of rodent studies and human studies to, to kind of verify. But we see that the activity of some of the, the channels through which those protons leak are suppressed during energy restriction. So the mitochondria, um, to kind of summarize it, they alter the way they handle that transport of protons 
in a way that makes it a more efficient process so that your body, which believes it is starving, um, can basically get away with using less calories. So the other side of that coin or the other kind of contributing factor is certainly going to be hormonal changes. Uh, and that's been a focal point of a lot of our work that we've done in the lab because hormones are, they cost a little little bit of money to measure, but it, it, it's nowhere near the invasive and sophisticated lab techniques of looking specifically at mitochondrial function, <laughs> for instance. Um, no matter how much money you give me, I don't know how to do that, you know, <laughs> but hormones we can work with. Um, so some of the obvious hormones that change are related to energy expenditure and hunger. So thyroid hormone pretty consistently drops during prep. Um, leptin pretty consistently drops. Ghrelin pretty consistently increases. Uh, so what we find is a, a hormonal situation where th these are all feeding back uh, to kind of uh, indicate to the body that there's a general deficiency of energy. Uh, and, and so what happens is, you know, with thyroid hormone and leptin, those are going to have huge impacts on our energy expenditure. So as they drop, our energy, energy expenditure is, is certainly expected to decrease. Um, ghrelin is kind of a lesser known hormone, but it's heavily tied in with hunger. And so as ghrelin levels increase uh, over the course of contest prep or general energy restriction, uh, that's associated with an increased drive to eat. Um, and again, leptin and ghrelin kind of have opposite uh, functions. So when leptin falls, it not only influences your energy expenditure, but also your feeling of fullness or satiety. So um, I'm happy to go into more detail on any of those individual factors, but, but certainly we see a, a hormonal kind of milieu in the body in which hunger is increased, energy expenditure is suppressed. And then there are the other hormones. Um, you know, we'll see that testosterone and estrogen tend to drop, cortisol tends to increase. And so aside from the hunger, aside from the energy expenditure, now we have hormonal alterations that are threatening uh, the capacity to maintain lean mass mm -hmm. and also causing some uh, reproductive side effects. So for men, uh, you know, reduced libido is extremely common as testosterone falls. For females, we see that, uh, or for, for women, uh, we, we see that amenorrhea or general disruptions in the menstrual cycle are, are, are quite prevalent late in contest prep. Mm -hmm. No, super interesting, especially um, it's funny bringing back kind of the eighth, eighth grade biology or for me, that was kind of like, I guess, like sixth form or something, biology classes, uh, because it all, it all comes flooding back and it's very interesting. And it, it always surprises me how incredible the body is at survival um, with all these mechanisms to try and just be more efficient. Like all these things really are setting us up and they're positive things. But for contest prep, they're awfully annoying. Um, and you kind of spoke about kind of we get more efficient, the body gets kind of more hunger um, and it decreases the number of calories it's burning via these mechanisms. And we don't have a lot of control over those kind of inherently. Have you found any kind of particular pertinent strategies to try and reduce those side effects? So that that's quite an active area right now. Uh, I know a, f a week, maybe two weeks ago, there was a paper that came out by uh, 
I think the lead author was Peos with uh, Lane, Lane Norton contributed. I think Eric Helms contributed, Andy Galpin. Um, but they were looking at one of the most interesting strategies that's emerging right now, which is the idea of using intermittent energy restriction rather than just a straight kind of energy restriction. So uh, the, the way the terminology that bodybuilders would most associate that with would be um, things like refeeds or diet breaks. Um, I think that when it specifically comes to the alterations in metabolic rate and some of these hormone fluctuations, it's important to realize that some of some of the effect is dictated by getting really lean. Some of the effect is dictated by the acute lack of energy available. So there's there's kind of long-term energy restriction, but we can also look at some of the short-term manipulation of how much energy is available to the body. So these intermittent strategies are basically trying to say, well, we, we could basically offset some of those acute effects for a very short term and 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 accept the fact that generally speaking that some of those long-term things are going to be there um just as a as a natural consequence of getting lean um and i, I like the way you, you kind of brought that up is from an evolutionary perspective you know we're all searching for you know what's the purpose of my life well from biology is pretty simple like your purpose is to not starve to death uh not die of thirst and try to reproduce like that's pretty much how biological organisms work so you kind of have to accept that we're fighting against one of our most basic needs as as an organism. So the, the long-term stuff, there's not a ton we can do, uh, but we can do little short-term things to at least attenuate uh, the magnitude of those effects. Right. So the intermittent restriction, um, I think it's a promising avenue that people are looking at. Uh, there is evidence in humans showing that there's some benefit there. Um, so looking at like a single day overfeeding i don't think one day based on the evidence that's out there is really enough to put a dent in it um bill campbell did a couple studies where they, they, so far they've they've only been put out as abstracts but a two-day refeeding period was starting to look like okay over the long term maybe a little more favorable for lean mass retention maybe a little more favorable for keeping energy expenditure closer to where it should be um there's also some studies looking at three days and beyond. And I, I think three days and beyond is kind of if you're really trying to put a dent in some of those metabolic adaptations, I think that is probably where you should be focusing your energy. Um, the most uh, one of the, the more extreme approaches that has really good evidence supporting it so far is kind of a two week on two week off strategy. So there is a big study. Uh, it's called like the Matador trial. Right. Um, and they did two weeks of energy restriction and then two weeks at maintenance. And, and it's really important to note that's maintenance. That's not back to normal, you know, so literally the exact amount of calories to put you at a spot to maintain your new reduced body weight. So, um, they did two weeks on two weeks off. And what they found was, uh, a little bit more effective for fat loss in the long run. And they also found that it was uh, effective at attenuating some of those unexpected drops in energy expenditure. Now, the energy expenditure did drop because we're becoming a smaller human being. So that's going to happen. But what we're trying to attenuate is those extra drops um, that appear to be, you know, related to energy availability, related to some of these hormonal changes. So the two week on, two week off 
trial. It still needs to be replicated. We still need more research to kind of say, well, what if we did one week, you know, like a two to one ratio? There's, there's still going to be some processes uh, or additional work needed to figure out exactly what the sweet spot is. But for now, somewhere between three and 14 days, which is, I mean, an incredibly broad window, but that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the obvious downside there is now you're looking at a prep that is about twice as long. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a hard, a hard sell. But um, I, I think what most people are probably going to do with that information and, and probably what I think is the easiest course moving forward, you, you might get that, that rare client that says, yeah, prep me for a year. And if you've got a year to work with, fine, you know, you can do two weeks on two weeks off. There's going to be more guesswork. You can't do what they did for the trial and actually measure their, their metabolic rate and, and, and kind of keep adjusting it as you go. But that, that's certainly a viable option. Um, I think most people are probably going to meet in the middle and they'll probably say, okay, we've done about three weeks of good, fairly linear weight loss. Why don't we pause for a week? Um, something along those lines, or they might try to get more, um, look at more of a micro cycle than a meso cycle to borrow from, you know, the periodization literature. But instead of doing like a few weeks of dieting and then a week long break, they might say, well, why don't we do four lower days and three higher days within a week in terms of, of kind of cycling calories, which is not, not super different from, you know, when, when carb cycling was really big and some people would allow their caloric intake to cycle with the carbohydrate. Um, so, you know, nothing in this world is new. You know, these are mm-hmm. things people have been doing for a while, but more, the more that I look at studies coming out, I think, using that intermittent kind of nonlinear approach seems to be the most evidence-backed way to deal with it currently. And I think that stringing at least two or three days of higher intakes in a row is probably the ideal way to do it. Now, there's also some general uh, best practices that you can use. Um, When we talk about metabolic adaptation, we look at all the facets in kind of a vacuum how do I deal with the leptin thing? How do I deal with the insulin drop that I would expect? But realistically, we're looking at broad habits that affect pretty broad outcomes. You know, I need to keep my energy expenditure up. I need to keep my muscle and I need to get lean. So I think looking at some more broad recommendations that might help with some of the unintended consequences of diet, uh, certainly protein is a must. You know, we have to keep our protein high during prep. And Eric Helms has a great review paper suggesting not only we still need it high during prep, but we might especially need it high during prep. Um, and, and I think he presents a very, uh, a very evidence-based, very well-thought-out argument in that regard. So when you're prepping, looking at your macronutrient ratios is important for dealing with some of the – even if it's not doing anything for your mitochondria, um, we're, we're still worried about those hormonal effects and how they're going to affect lean mass – Um, and certainly if we're losing lean mass during prep, regardless of how we feel, we are not accomplishing what we're setting out to do. We know it'll happen to some extent, but we get, we have to attenuate that. Um, so high, high protein during the diet. Um, I, when it comes to fat, that's tricky because a lot of people say, well, you should go high fat to deal with some of the testosterone effects that we see during prep. Um, I think to some extent there's evidence to support, you know, There's a lot of studies where they keep everything else pretty much evenly matched and just kind of cut out fat from the diet. And that 
generally speaking, has a negative effect mm -hmm. on testosterone levels. The problem is, again, looking at short-term versus long-term dictators of these effects. I would argue that do whatever you want with your dietary fat. If you get down as a, a male to 5% body fat or you're a female and you're getting down to like 10, 11% body fat, um, there, there's not enough fat in the world you know, at, at that level of calories that's going to rescue you, especially if you're a dude at 5% body fat, uh, unless you were born that way, you, your testosterone is probably going to drop off to some extent. Um, so I would say you want to keep it as high as you can get away with. Uh, well, I wouldn't even say that. I would say you want to prevent yourself from going below a like absolute lower limit so that you're at least trying to do your part to keep some fat in there. And even if it's not helping with testosterone, you still need fat in the diet. Yeah. You know, there are essential fatty acids you need and it's going to be required for proper absorption of fat soluble vitamins. So for me, I don't like to go below 0.6 grams per kilogram of body mass. So when I'm late in prep, that's usually about 40, 45 grams of fat a day. I've, I've noticed when I go below that, I generally don't like the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so you've got your protein needs met. You've got your kind of baseline fat level that you're inevitably going to reach late in prep. And then everything else comes from carbs. Will that help with leptin? Will it help with insulin? Maybe a little bit. Um, will it help with training? Most likely. So again, there, there are certain things that are just general best practices that may help a little bit with some of these things. Uh, they certainly won't be hindering those aspects. And as a general best practice, they make sense when you consider how are we going to not only deal with metabolic adaptation, but also preserve lean mass, preserve our capacity to train. Um, so I think, I think those are some, some good things to work in there. And the final thing I'll touch on is uh, aerobic exercise or, or basically in the bodybuilding world, we call it cardio, you know. Um, I think cardio needs to be pretty carefully managed. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, the, the energy deficit and the loss of tissue is what's really pushing these metabolic adaptations mm -hmm. forward. And certainly any aerobic exercise that contributes to an energy deficit is going to be partially responsible for those things. Um, the reason that I encourage people to get very, uh, very thoughtful about how they're using cardio and prep is that it, there is potential if we push it too far that it can exacerbate some of these prep related problems. So, um, you know, if we absolutely train ourselves into the dirt, with a bunch of cardio, um, certainly that has the capacity to further alter that cortisol to testosterone ratio, which is something that we don't want. It has the ability to impair our recovery uh, from our resistance training workouts, which certainly we don't want. And it also has the capacity, when you're talking about very high cardio amounts, to have a, a pretty tangible interference effect. Um, the research on the interference effects Every now and then there's a paper that comes out saying, yeah, it doesn't look like it's that prevalent of an issue in our study, but it's very contextual and you see that the likelihood of your cardio interfering with your strength and your hypertrophy related outcomes is increased when you're, you start to push both of them upward. So when your total amount of training gets really high, that's where the interference effect gets, gets pretty notable. And I would, I would speculate that when you're also not eating enough, losing a ton of weight, training like crazy with your weights, doing a ton of cardio, um, 
pushing that cardio up is probably contributing to some of these prep related side effects that are quite common. So those are kind of general best practices. Some of them are to directly kind of combat these, you know, key aspects of, of metabolic adaptation. And some of them, it might just be a helpful bonus that they have the capacity to help in that regard. I thought that was really well explained. And I think the the research over the last, I don't know how many years now, kind of three, four years on refeeding has been really interesting. And then kind of talking about multiple day refeeding, because I think kind of single day refeeding was very popular for a short time. And now it's becoming more and more popular to kind of pile them together. And then like having a week off kind of the diet break um, is something I've definitely started utilizing in my coaching, kind of going further away from there. And I really liked how you put it in that we can do these things, but you're not going to completely stop the adaptations occurring. They're still, if you're going to go down to those lean levels of body fat, you're still going to see some adaptations. And I really like the discussion of, so are we going to go for like a really long prep or are we going to like try and find this sweet spot in the middle where we can have a, a reasonable size prep that's not super inefficient in terms of time scale in our whole bodybuilding career versus kind of having a really short one that we just see so many adaptations that we don't get the result we want. And I definitely agree that I see this kind of convergence happening. Yeah, I, I really like that you put it that way. Sorry to interject, no, but I didn't good. want to forget to say this. Um, I really like that you put it that way because a lot of people are, there's a growing trend of, you know, longer preps. Back in the day when, when I first got interested in bodybuilding, it seemed like everybody was doing a 12-week prep. Yeah. Like there, it didn't matter if you were like 70 pounds over stage weight or like six pounds over stage weight. It was here's your 12-week prep. The preps are getting longer and that's a good thing. Um, but at some point, you also have to draw a line and you have to say, listen, the, we call this sport bodybuilding, right? So how much of my career – do I want to spend in a deficit not building muscle? And especially uh, early in your career, you know, do you really want to spend all that time that you could have been continuing to build up a frame of muscularity where it's like you're just doing prep after prep and they're getting longer and longer and longer. And, you know, you start to subconsciously turn the sport into, you know, chronic dieting rather than bodybuilding. Um, so, while I think it's a good trend, I also think, you know, cer certainly if you said, hey, 36 weeks or 12, I'd say 36. But the question is when you start saying, well, I'm going to do two on two off for the rest of my life and just kind of prep into perpetuity, that's where it's like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't prep for like 18 months. You know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's a fine line where you want to give yourself an ability to have a discrete period that is your contest prep and then a discrete period where it's like, okay time to get back to recovering and then actually building some muscle. Mm -hmm. No, brilliant. And I, I really like actually that you brought up talking about uh, training age in, or even just how old you are in that once you are towards kind of the further end of your career, potentially these longer, longer preps almost make sense because the bodybuilding stuff kind of has almost ended because you can't build that much anymore. So I think that was a really good kind of context you provided to kind of further that discussion. And then in terms of, I, I definitely agree, and I think all the listeners agree, kind of, um, I think it's great that more people are becoming more aware of kind of the importance of having maybe slightly higher protein, prioritizing some carbohydrates there, but remembering that we need those essential uh, fats. And something I think you talked about in the paper that I wanted to bring up as well was kind of the size of the deficit and kind of using that kind of stepwise approach was another way you brought about kind of attenuating these things. Because I think some people 
like dive in and they just bomb it or they actually the frustrating thing i sometimes see is people go way too slow at the start and then they end up pushing it too quickly towards the or quicker than what would be appropriate towards the end so i'd love you to kind of discuss that final um, way of attenuating some things yeah thank you for bringing that up i, I forgot to mention that that's all good that's good <laughs> um the reason I forgot to mention it is because I, I think subconsciously I kind of lump that together with this new idea of the intermittent approach and taking diet breaks. So looking at the long term kind of time scale of a prep, I think there are two different ways that essentially are accomplishing similar goals, which is to keep the, the deficit in, in a reasonable operating range. You know what I mean? So the, the, the two ways you could do that is take a longer prep than you would have and then you just if you keep it linear it's just a smaller deficit um you, you're allowed to take you give yourself the ability to take more kind of stepwise reductions that are less severe in magnitude you know like if, if you're going to do a 12-week prep you got to dive right in and cut and cut and cut and cut and there, there's just not a lot of opportunity to have a very modest deficit that gives you time to actually lose that weight in a, in a reasonable time frame. And we, we know from research, there, there's several studies, some of which were actually done in very active populations. If you do a very rushed rate of weight loss versus a more slower approach, the rushed way of doing it is likely to have more unfavorable effects on your performance, your strength, and the amount of muscle mass that you retain from that diet. So in the interest of maintaining performance, strength, muscle mass, slower rates of weight loss with with smaller relative uh deficits along the way are, are probably a good way to to help with with those aspects but also to attenuate some of those short-term uh dictators of these adaptations you know so long term you're still getting to the same body fat some of those more chronic dictators of these various feedback mechanisms are still going to be there but the short-term stuff you know the the really rapid drops in calories, we can attenuate some of those effects, uh, which is a, a nice thing. And so the reason I lump them together is I kind of see the the kind of diet break approach as from from a very big picture scale, a similar way of doing that. You know, you're extending the timeline of the prep. So even if you're doing it in a nonlinear approach, you know, over that month of dieting, you're you're generally keeping your deficit on average a little bit smaller than if you didn't implement the diet breaks or if you didn't extend your your prep timeline mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah definitely um no really nicely put and uh, the only thing i wanted to put towards you again in terms of kind of attenuating some of these things and you rightly put i think uh, all of the listeners can agree with kind of that zombie mode you get into during prep where just everything is effort and it's almost like i, I for me the low energy levels at the end of prep are worse than any hunger you could kind of give me. I could take all the hunger just if I had some energy <laughs> spare to actually kind of just do things like moving my arms around. And I don't know if there's anything you have come across as a coach. I don't know if there's anything in the literature either to attenuate any of those impacts on neat. As you rightly said, a lot of it is unconscious, I think. Um, but I think there are some maybe conscious things we could do. Is there anything you've utilized? Yeah. And before I answer that, I want to clarify. I talked about slow weight loss and then the kind of 
intermittent diet breaks as both being things that relatively reduce your deficit in the big picture. I don't want to act like I'm saying those are the exact same things. I think some of the acute hormone benefits of actually going to maintenance for a brief period are probably a little bit more advantageous. Right. So I don't want your listeners to come yell at me on, on social media. Uh, they're different, but, but kind of similar in, in what they're, what they're doing. Right. But, um, your, your question was, um, attenuating the drops in neat. Yeah. Um, that's tough. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So Eric Helms and I wrote an article about this if, quite a few years ago. It was probably like three or four years ago now. And I put in kind of a, I was kind of being a smart ass, but I put in a line of like, you know, well, just always fidget or something or like, you know, it was some stupid thing of like how to keep your neat up. And it was clearly very tongue in cheek. And I was just kind of acknowledging like there's certain things we just can't manage. And Eric was like, in the editing process, he was like, I really think we should take that out because I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm afraid people are going to take that literally and actually do it. Uh, but yeah, I was like, so th there's a, there's certain things that we just can't deal with and maintain our sanity. So the, the little stuff, the, the way that you just move while you're sitting in your chair, that stuff, we're, we're just letting it go. Um, I'm not going to tell you like, Hey, keep one of those like little fidget spinners around it. Just always be messing with it or try tapping your foot all the time because realistically you're probably doing that less, but unless we want to absolutely drive you insane and burn you out, uh, psychologically, just let it go. Just let that stuff go. The things that you might be able to implement in a not ridiculous way. Um, I know somebody that likes to keep their step count. Um, you know, they have like a, like a Fitbit or even like your phone might track it for you. Um, but saying, okay, well I should try to keep my step count generally at a certain operating range. And that way, if they've been an absolute like slug all day and just have not moved at all, that that's something where they can say, okay, maybe I should take a walk because I'm clearly doing no non-exercise activity today. Um, that would depend on the client. Uh, if I think that that's really going to mess with their head a lot and just right. keep them feeling like they're a hamster in a wheel that has to keep moving, I'm probably going to say, screw it. I'd rather add formal cardio or I'd rather drop your calories more and just let you have the peace of mind of not worrying about it. But if you wanted to get very, very particular about it, something like keeping a step count up or just trying to even more qualitatively be cognizant of the fact that you barely move anymore and trying to, you know, it's little stuff. It's like when you're mm -hmm. leaving your house to go to the office and you realize like, oh, I forgot my phone charger, but maybe my phone will, will survive and <laughs> won't actually need a charge. When you're in prep, there's no chance you're going back to get that. When you're not in prep, you probably are going back to get that. Um, those are the types of things where you can just kind of be cognizant of like, maybe I should go grab my charger, you know? But I, I'm very hesitant to make like a blanket statement of like, make sure you adhere to your step counts because I just don't want people to, I, I love bodybuilding and the people I work with, I want them to love it too. I, I don't want it to be like a, a ball and chain that they kind of carry around this, this huge burden that affects all aspects of their life. So that's kind of an individualized thing. It can be dealt with to some extent in those ways. The stuff that can't be dealt with, you just, you just let it go. No, I thought that was really well put because um, step counts is something I utilized in my last prep and 
it certainly got to a point where it was becoming a kind of all-encompassing, taking up my entire day. I'd have to go out for like a half an hour walk in the morning, middle of the day, at night. It was just becoming overwhelming. And I think you're completely right in that. Similar to kind of cardio, you kind of see diminishing effects of these sort of things. I even know my steps towards the end of prep were not the same as at the start in that I didn't have the spring in my step. I was kind of dragging my heels. So it's kind of some of the things and I think the way you put it in terms of you have to just accept it let it go don't stress about it if calories have to come down they're going to have to come down um, I think that was really well put can I mention a, a cool study on that note definitely um, I believe we referenced it in the metabolic adaptation review paper but uh, Rosenbaum's lab out in Columbia did two studies uh, looking at muscle efficiency uh, after weight loss and what's really cool, you mentioned like diminishing returns even when you kept your step count up. Um, what they found in their lab was to do a fixed amount of work of cycling. After weight loss, the amount of calories spent on the same workload was, was less. You know, basically muscle efficiency was increased mm -hmm. following that weight loss. Um, but what I really love about their paper was they were like, well, wait a minute. Even though it's cycling, uh, there's still a little difference in how much the legs weigh after you lose that weight, which like for something like walking is a big difference. Mm. The entire mass of your body is now different. But even with cycling, when you're sitting on a seat, they're like, technically, we should probably deal with the fact that your, your leg after weight loss that's doing the pedaling weighs less. And they actually did outfit the legs with just, they used DEXA to look at how much specifically lean, or I'm sorry, leg mass was lost. And they actually replaced it with little tiny weights. Wow. Um, and even, even in the context of weight replacement, the muscle efficiency was increased, meaning for the same amount of workload with the limb matched to weigh the same amount, less calories were spent. So that was not in your head. That's a thing that's been shown with some pretty cool studies. And now you're going to get people wearing uh, weighted vests going for their walks <laughs> because we well, can yeah. attenuate for that. <laughs> I was going to say back in the day, like the, the thing was, uh, people that like weren't that into fitness would still like put on ankle weights and wrist uh, weights and like go walking. Oh yeah. So maybe now a bunch of bodybuilders are going to get ankle weights and, and take those on a stroll. Eric, I want to say thank you very much for this podcast. Cause it's been really, really fun talking through this. And I think the audience are going to really enjoy it. And I want to make sure that if they want to find more about you, you've done a load of research papers and we, you've got more on bodybuilders specifically that I want the audience to kind of go and check out. If they want to learn more about you, Eric, where should they head to? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm on social media for like direct questions. Uh, Twitter is at Eric Trexler. Facebook is Eric Trexler. Instagram is at Trexler Fitness. Uh, you know, there, I have like a research gate page and you can just search me on PubMed. Uh, the one thing I'd really like to bring attention to now that I'm director of education at Stronger by Science, um, the, the article I'm working on right now is a three-part article. Um, it's going to be very long, very comprehensive, very detailed. And it's basically set up where I'm going to talk in part one about metabolic adaptation and go into more detail about some of the stuff we talked about today. Part two is going to be strategies to deal with it. Uh, so a more closer look at the evidence, uh, certainly diet breaks will be part of that, dealing with macros, managing your cardio. Part three is gonna be what to do after the diet. Cool. So people talk a lot about reverse dieting, recovery dieting. 
so that's going to be a massive three-part article. Um, it'll come out in three installations over the next few weeks. Um, it'll be totally free, and you'll be able to find it at StrongerByScience.com. So if I misspoke about anything today, <laughs> hold, hold me accountable based on the article, not not what I said. <laughs> and that article, it may well already be out by the time this comes out. Um, so I'll make sure if it is, we'll have it linked below so people can go and check it out as well. Awesome. Awesome. Cheers, guys. And thank you again, Eric. Thank you.